I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 605, Africa. Our travels across the world continue in this encounter, and it's not the first time we've been to Africa on the show. In Encounter 202, The Saucer Love Life, we met Elizabeth Clarer, a South African woman who claimed to have had a romantic extraterrestrial encounter that resulted in a child. If you haven't heard it, you can check it out in the archives at saucerlife.com. Her autobiography and account of the events beyond the light barrier was interesting, you'll recall, I argued, not only because of the contact story, but as an example of white post-colonial anxiety in Africa. The story we're going to be looking at today doesn't have the same kind of political or colonial overtones, um, or at least not as overtly as we saw with Clara, but the presence of a, a colonizing entity still sort of hovers over the whole story. The story we're going to look at had an interesting history, and apart from where I found it in a 1998 article in Natalia, the Journal of the Natal Society, which according to its website, quote, has served the scientific and literary interests of the community of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. Apart from finding it in there, I haven't seen any sort of mention of this in UFO literature. I might have missed it. Uh, I probably did. So if you've seen other references to it, let me know. But it's interesting. So we're going to be looking at this one story, and we'll be hearing it in its entirety, the, the account as it was written, because I think it's important to examine carefully, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun story. It comes to us originally from a member of a Zulu tribe, and his name was Mafelo Zunga. Zunga was born around 1853, yeah, 1853, and died in 1946, and he was related to Zulu royalty and worked with British colonial officials, uh, fought in military campaigns and, and, and did administrative work and things like that. At some point, and we don't know exactly when, he related a story to a white woman named Nimba Lula McCare. Who was McCare? No one knows, not even Robert Papini, author of the article I found about this, the only article I found about this. We have the account because it was preserved by a man named Carl Fay, F-A-Y-E, who was an interpreter for the colonial government in South Africa and had a sizable collection of oral history accounts that he had collected and others had collected and that he'd sort of collated during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Because of Fay's record keeping, we know that the account you're going to hear was given sometime before 1923. Let's listen to it now. Much it is that I've seen in my time, but this, this is like a dream. This is what happened. I was on a journey from my home in the lowlands to visit people in the highlands, a day's walking distance. At last I got to the mountains and edged upwards. In one part of the ascent, the path is flanked by a sheer rocky rise, and at the foot of this towering place is a flat grassy land quite wide, crossed by the path. Below this is a steep slope with boulders where there are snakes and rock rabbits, clip-springers, and baboons. 
There on the shelf, I sat down to rest and took out my snuff and snuffed and looked around and I saw something odd, something I'd never noticed before. It was a very big rock, smooth and egg-shaped, there, right next to the precipice. I asked myself audibly, what is this? So I went to look at it, put my hand on it, and it was very slippery in all directions, like wet clay, but it was quite dry. Then I thought I felt it move, and off I cleared, lest it roll over me. At a safe distance, I stopped to watch. The thing kept moving. Slowly, slowly, up, up it moved. Away I ran at top speed to the side of the flat ground where the footpath enters, and there stopped and stood, because if it crashed from so high up, it might do a lot of damage and leave nothing of me but bits and pieces. As I was running, I caught glimpses of my stomach. You see for yourself that it's a nice stomach, serving me well. It's of good capacity. With the haste of running, the stomach was wobbling, wobbling, yibbling, yibbling, and I wondered whether it would ever serve me again for beer. Terrible. There I stood and asked myself, are you dreaming? I looked upward, but there was nothing to see at all now. The thing wasn't there. Gone. Clean gone. I sat down. I looked at myself, and I was still really myself. I looked around, and it was just ordinary broad daylight. The sun was shining. I took out my snuff and tapped some into my palm. <sniffs> ah, I said to myself, no, I will go ahead and make my visit to the people in the highlands. So I started, meaning that when I had got to the top of the climb, I would hasten onward, where the country was easier. But on getting within full view of the precipice at the side of the flat shelf, there the thing was again, as I had first seen it. This was scandalous, and, and now I became scared, mature though I be, properly scared. Why should this happen to me, of all people? A bearded man in his prime now appeared, coming from the thing, but nowhere that I could make out, and he walked with a stately gait toward me. It was a person unknown to me, but at any rate, a person, so I waited. My heart told me to run for it, but I refused, for he was unarmed and I had my asagai. As he came up to me, and before I could greet him in the usual way, he said something which sounded like woofoo woofoo in his beard. That beat me, and I just looked at him. Then he undid a small, neatly plated glass satchel from a necklace he was wearing and took out a charm. He broke this in two, and put one piece into his mouth and started chewing. He put the other piece into my mouth. I found myself chewing, too, and it was a bit bitter, but I swallowed. What else could I do? He spoke again, and, marvel of marvels, I knew his speech language as well as my own. He said, Zungu, you have been scared, but all this will do you no hurt. I have come here in that, he was pointing to the thing, to see something, and my wife is with me and our two children. All is good, harmless. I came to this spot because I thought it was secluded and that nobody would notice anything. But now you are here and you see this, again he pointed to the thing, and I have no choice but to show you inside. You have lighted on my secret errand which can no longer be concealed from you. We are on a peaceful mission. Let me show you how we are traveling. Come and see inside. With that, he walked toward the thing and I followed close to him. Just as we started walking, the lower part of the thing began to raise itself, as a bird raises its wings, until it had mushroomed right out. But there was no split to be seen in the spread. The spread was complete, like an open umbrella. I then saw that this base of the thing was flat, 
and that it was standing upright on its flat. A cleft appeared in the wall and became a doorway. He walked in and I walked in too, and we were both standing on an even floor. The part of the floor where we were standing rose very gently, and above our heads the ceiling opened, and we passed through the ceiling into the upper apartment and stopped there. When we had been lifted, I had felt nothing. That upper apartment was very nice and cozy. I was gazing around this when a doorway opened, and there were the man's wife and two children, a boy and a girl, the lad old enough to herd goats and the girl to carry water. They sat down. The mother busied herself with decorating a calabash milk vessel, and the girl put down beads and did beadworking. During this time, the man had been talking to me. He asked, Whither were you going? I told him, To people on the highland, on my way from the lowland. Thereupon he said, Seeing you have thus been detained, though you having noticed this carrier of mine, I will lift you up in it and take you near to your destination. You will be there by the sundown. There is no need for you to have any fear. You will feel nothing at all. Merely tell me how long it takes you to walk there, the direction from here, and what the home you are visiting is like, how many huts the stock fold, and what is to be seen growing there. Do you know? he asked. Feel anything? No, I said. I feel nothing. He said, you see, you feel nothing, and we are up in the air. Let me show you. With that, he went to the side of the apartment, and something parted. He looked down and beckoned to me, saying, come and see, and have no fear. This is for seeing with the eyes only, and cannot make an open hole. It is like a window that is fixed firmly. I went and looked. How surprised I was. There, below, like a picture, was the country. A big expanse of it, land and highland, hills and herding cattle, and the smaller boys herding goats separately. Some of the bigger boys were playing at stabbing the encima bulb, hurled down a slope, bounding and bouncing like a buck, whilst the competitors in a row threw their imitation asagais of sharpened thin sticks, others with leafy branches. I saw everything, and recognized homes I knew. I said I was satisfied, and the view-giver closed. Turning, I noticed that the man's small daughter was talking to herself as she was doing her beadwork, talking in the speech I knew. I listened. She picked up a bead and said, My heart is black because of you, and I don't like you anymore. Then she picked up a red one and said, My heart is now red like blood, for you have made me cross. So she was saying as she strung each bead, The green one, now my heart is quietened, for I see the green grass and the cattle are grazing. A blue one, now my heart is quietened, glad again, for I see the blue on a clear day. A straw-colored bead, here my heart is pleased, the grass is yellowing, and we shall reap, and we shall go out and cut thatching grass and make our homes snug. A white one, oh, I see only happiness. Then the man spoke to me, saying, You have been hearing my child as she strings beads. Now we are above cloud, and you have felt nothing. We went to the viewer, and it opened. There below I saw a wonder. No land, everywhere white, all crimply, different from what clouds are like from the earth. Away, away, up the dome of the sky was the half-moon, still aloft, all here by itself, as though flung on the sky and just stuck there. The sun was shining, but was obscured now by cloud. The viewer closed. The man said, Now I shall take you down, to be in good time for your visit. He said soon after, Come now to the seeing place and direct me, for we are over the highland homes, and homes are clear to the eye. I indicated to him, and we got near the home I wanted to visit. The viewer closed, and soon he said, We are down on the earth. I had felt nothing. Nothing. He said, Come and stand with me here on the alighting place. 
Next, we were on the ground, the two of us. I had been half a day's foot journey without having walked at all, and here I was, right close to my destination. I saw people of the home I was visiting, but they took no notice, as if they did not see us. The man said, Come back! Forget not your assegai. And we went back. Where did you leave it, he asked. I looked, but I saw no assegai. He put out his hand and said, But here it is. And then I saw it, and he handed it back to me. Farewell, I said to his family. And we went out, he and I, to the ground. On the ground, he asked, When are you likely to go back to your home? I replied, There is elsewhere I shall be going, but I shall pass here on the morning of the fourth day from today, homeward. I took him by the hand and said thank you. Then we parted, and I stood there watching him go. But somehow he just disappeared, as on the thing. I took my way home, all in wonder. I had seen far more than swallows see from the air, perhaps as much as the vultures that vanished from sight up in the sky. Thanks for indulging such a long story. This is not the first or only instance of African, particularly Southern African, stories about creatures and beings from the air and things in the sky and things like that. Mpengula Mabanda, for example, was a student of Henry Calloway, an Anglican clergyman in the same region. In Calloway's collection of folk stories and religious traditions from the region, he quotes Mabanda, Mabanda sorry, discussing, quote, the people who, we suppose, are on the other side of the heaven. The Zulu tradition of otherworldly claims has, in modern times, been taken up by a guy named Credo Mutwa, who gained prominence in American UFO and, I'm doing air quotes, New Age circles in the 1990s, with, for example, John Mack discussing him in his 1994 book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. Unless I'm mistaken, Mutwa achieved a much higher profile by the end of the decade through association with David Icke, who connected Mutwa's stories with his own theories about shape-shifting reptilians from the lower fourth dimension having controlled humanity's destiny from the very beginning. Mack had discussed Mutwa in the context of a widely known and very, very interesting abduction case, a, abduct, a multiple daylight abduction of several children from a playground of the Ariel School. And I was going to talk about the story, and then I realized, one, it's been getting a lot of attention lately, and so I, I thought I wouldn't want to sort of look like I was throwing my hat in the ring with some other podcasts that have been talking about this incident in the last couple of weeks. And also, it deserves its own sort of spread of time, and I really wanted to talk about this story of the guy with the oval-shaped rock. And so, we'll, if you were wondering if I was going to talk about the aerial school incident, I will, but not today. So, Credo Muo was, was born in 1921, and as a young teen was raped by a group of men near his home. And in the aftermath of this trauma, he claimed to have experienced an expanded consciousness, psychic abilities, and so on. Interestingly, John Mack, when he briefly discussed Mutwa in his book Abduction, conflates and confuses some issues. The assault Mutwa suffered took place in 1937 at the hands of mine workers, and Mack talks about that at age 37, Mutwa experienced an abduction experience um, while working at a mine and was subjected to the kinds of humiliating medical experimentation endemic to the stereotypical abduction scenario. Um, is this a difference? We'll see in a little bit that it turns out Mac was not as confused as he sounded because it, it seems like a mistake uh, that he's mixing up an event that took place in 1937 with Mutwa being 37 years of age. 
the timelines are weird. Um, so it was a abduction scenario. And, and one reason for the confusion is that in 1994, uh, Mutwa hadn't written anything about these experiences for a Western audience. Uh, he'd written a lot about uh, African mythology, Zulu mythology and, and, and culture and and things like that. But uh, but his big sort of breakout work for the American audience would be in 1996. Mutwa, in that 1996 book, which is called uh, Zulu Shaman, Dreams, Prophecies, and Mysteries, discusses things that were very evocative, not only of the abduction experience in and of itself, but of the wider, darker conspiracies that had accreted around the phenomenon. Here, he discusses the Mantindane, a malevolent collective that are not aliens per se, but in his words, part of the earth. They share the earth with us. They need us. They use us. They harvest things from us. We are being watched. We are being explored and investigated, and we are being controlled. And yet there are those among us who refuse to accept this fact. He also has discussed a personal abduction in 1958 when he would have been 37. So perhaps Mac's apparent confusion on years and events was not completely off the mark. Abductions, however, bore me. Other aspects of Mutwa's stories don't. Because he also has discussed the visitation of otherworldly beings in very straightforward terms, claiming that, quote, all African children used to see such things. And by such things, he's referring to small creatures, uh, small friendly humanoid creatures that somewhat resemble greys, others are blue. All African children used to see such things. The past tense construction he uses here is significant, and I, I think places some of, of Mutwa's mythologizing statements, like this one, within the larger realm of fairy lore, providing an important reminder of the fact that such things are not necessarily confined to Europe. We'll be doing a deeper dive on this topic in the near future, as you might have guessed from some of the mentions I've made over the past year about things like Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia and books by Joshua Cutchin, for example, to which I believe I've referred, I think. Um, but anyway, Mutwa's comments about the Mantidane's role in human development dovetail nicely with Ike's views about uh, a hidden group of extra-dimensional interlopers and interferers and interventionists. We and the Mantidane are one and the same stupid race. Far from these creatures being aliens, they are our future descendants. I am sure of this. They instill superstition, sow discord, and may even cause disease. Mutwa's retellings of the ancient beings coming to visit the Zulu peoples throughout history in their skyboats echoes much of what we heard from Elizabeth Clare, who was relating what she heard from Zulu members of the community of their old stories. And it also isn't entirely dissimilar to Zunga's account. Um, not entirely similar, but not entirely dissimilar. A fuller exploration of Mutwa's claims and, and how those claims have been co-opted by Western UFO and conspiracy thinkers would be a fruitful avenue for exploration in a future encounter. For now, however, let's take Mutwa as an example of the long line of African shaman or shamanic figures who have discussed connections to otherworldly or other dimensional beings. 
It's also worth noting that Mu'a did get involved in some other uh, some other conspiratorial type uh, type type thinking. He was a proponent, for example, in many of his works and and especially later interviews as he got older and older and older of a uh, an international conspiracy against against Africa and the African people, which pick up a history book is not entirely you know crazy but um he, he seemed to in in a, in a many times a veiled way um especially when he was talking mostly to a ufo crowd or a new age crowd a, a very sort of light-handed way talk about um the, potentially the introduction of uh, of the aids virus as a weapon of genocide against the african people but he, he's hardly alone in holding to that conspiracy theory so we have credo mutwa who has sort of carried forward this tradition of African, particularly Zulu, shaman, uh, talking about uh, beings from beyond the earth. But it's not the same as what we saw in the story that we just heard, is it? That's not about creatures from beyond heaven. That's, that's not about anything outer spacey. And although the title that the very mysterious McCair woman gave the story was I traveled to other worlds. It's not clear whether or not Zunga did or whether it was in his intention to say anything like that. To my reading, there's no indication that the strange egg-shaped craft went anywhere other than above the clouds, which in itself is pretty impressive. The surface of the craft, or the thing, as Zunga uh, continually called it, being dry but looking wet and slick like clay reminds me of plastic. And that sounds futuristic and anachronistic, but the description could easily be applied to materials that were contemporary to the time, like parkasine or bakelite or even a even shellac, for example. Apart from the craft itself, another aspect I find interesting is that the people in the craft the women in particular, are engaged in activities like decorating the milk vessel and the, uh, that the mother was doing and the daughter doing the bead craft. These are things that Zunga would be familiar with. Um, and this could indicate a couple things, depending on your disposition. If it was a real encounter that literally happened, it's likely that these are human Earth people from the region who somehow got hold of an advanced flying machine, which, of course, sends us down the paths of breakaway civilizations, secret space programs, and, and similar alternative historical narratives. However, if Zunga was simply telling a tall tale, not unlike some of the folks we've seen in the past, then he's simply painting his mysterious visitors to match his own culture and what he's familiar with. Sort of a, a less panicky or pernicious version of what Elizabeth Clare did when portraying outer space people in the outer space future as being indelibly white. Another example, when the girl doing the beadwork was, was sort of doing the, the, I don't know what to call it, sort of a game where she had a phrase to say that matched the color of the beads, um, the one about the, the the dried grass being used to, uh, to to thatch the houses and make them comfy. That's that that's not a very sort of spacey thing. It's very very terrestrial. These stories reflect the context of their telling, and that doesn't automatically disqualify them from consideration because every story, from the most basic, true, factually based account to the most outlandish tale woven to evoke sympathy, contributions, customers, or believers is told from a particular perspective, and often that perspective can act like 
like a fingerprint, indelibly embossing the story with a unique signature and personality. In this way, we can see that at some point, everyone lives their own saucer life. Next time, we head to Asia as we bring to a close this globe-spanning array of episodes. You can explore past encounters in the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. The Saucer Life Encounter 605 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies. Why? Well, because the skies are in fact watching you.